Welcome back to another episode of Being an Artist is Fucking Killing Me. I'm Corinne. I'm Rainy. Happy Tuesday. Happy holidays, everybody. Heck yeah. It's basically Christmas. This is our last episode before we come back. Mm-hmm. Um, and we just want to wish you all a very happy holidays. I know your holidays are going to be very different this year. Mm-hmm. You may be alone. You may be just with a partner. You may be spending it with a smaller group. Um, whatever you do, please take some time to enjoy yourself. Have yes. a Zoom call. Um, spoil yourself a little bit and let us know. Reach out to us if you need anything. Yeah. Um, tell your friends and family you love them, even if you don't get to be with them. Yeah. It'll be really important over the holidays. Um, and also be safe, you know? Yeah. Don't be silly. Yeah. And if you are looking for gifts or how to support your artist friends, there are tons of people around you that make things. Um, look for those people. Try to buy local. Support the artists around you. Uh, donate to their campaigns. We have our Patreon, obviously, which you've been hearing every single week for the last <laughs> three months. Yeah. Um, but there's lots of people around you that could use your support and make beautiful things with their time and their talents. So. Thank you guys so much, and I hope you have a great holiday. And this week we have Thomas Pepper. The fabulous Thomas Pepper. Sweet, sweet Tom. Here we go. Okay, um, so Tom, you just got back from Newfoundland, right? Yeah, St. John's, yeah. What were you, oh, St. John's, what were you doing in St. John's? Uh, I was working on an upcoming TV series for sci-fi in the States and CTV in Canada called The Realtor. It's a horror comedy show about a realtor who sells haunted houses. Um, and I was there as the script coordinator and one of the story editors in the writer's room. Wow. Can you explain what a script coordinator is? Because I feel like I need to know the exact, exactly what it is before I can ask. It's a very funny job because, uh, my job is essentially to relay the information from the script department to the rest of the department. So the process is this. My boss, the showrunner, sends me a script to proof. I go through the scripts, make sure all the commas are where they need to be, all the characters are in the right scene, everything that's supposed to be at night is at night, everything is formatted nice and correctly, and then I make sure it gets out to all the departments. So everyone is reading off of the same script, the exact same script, so there's no doubling back and being like, well, my version says this, so I built the 40-foot high horse, Oh, but this one says we only needed an actual pony. You know, mm-hmm. we go back and forth like that. So it's a blend of copy editing and story editing um, that has ties to production, editorial, pre-production, all of that kind of stuff. And how much of the responsibility is before the actors get there and after, like, you guys are actually on the day of shooting? Or is it kind of equally balanced? Uh, well, we're always writing like the night yeah. before there's always pages to go out things always change logistics change perfect example we have a script where it says uh someone compliments the neutrals uh, the neutral paint but the location we got and we don't want to repaint it is all blue so like the night before we had to go in and change that line to love the blues or i can't remember what the actual line is but it's making sure everything tracks through so there's no hiccups like that um, but the process really starts day one when the writer's room convenes, they come up with 
the, this is a season one show, so we come up with the entire mythology of it uh, and start implementing that slowly but surely. And throughout that, I have to track all the little details of, well, a character in episode two said that their mom died. So when they're talking about their mom in episode eight, they can't be saying like, I had tea with them last week, unless right. that's part of the story, unless we actually say that's right. the deal. So it's always, always, always looking forward to what's happening in production and what's happening um, with the scripts. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And working on season, cause you're on season one of this realtor. So mm -hmm. what is, how much responsibility? Cause like you're in the room with the writers and you're in the room while they're being, well, it's like everything's being written and created. How much responsibility um, does the show, how much responsibility do the, like the writers find in writing and creating that like season one versus moving forward in your like later seasons, seasons two, three, four, et cetera. Season one is a huge, uh, <laughs> season one is a huge uh, responsibility because it's a template for the show. It's where you start to build the bones of it. So when the showrunner, my boss, sold the idea, they pitched a premise, they pitched characters, they pitched a few ideas for what episodes would be, but the entire season is a lot more malleable and the tone of that is even more malleable. So it's where, in season one, the writers are really in charge of shaping that tone. Obviously, the buck stops with the showrunner. They're the person who, at the end of the day, has their executive producer created by. They're the ones that, they're the baby. They've been probably writing this for four to 10 to 15 years. It doesn't, don't really know. Um, but when it gets to the room, it goes from taking that idea into something that is 10 or 12 or 24 episodes. Not usually 24 anymore, but uh, yeah, around there. So it's a lot of fun coming up with uh, the personalities of these minor characters, uh, finding the little in-jokes that make everything work. Because ours is kind of an ensemble show. It's a real estate firm. So we have the guy who does research. We have the guy who builds their tech because they vanquish all these ghosts. They're kind of Ghostbusters, Dr. Venkman kind of version of it. Finding out who these characters are and what their relationships are is the heartbeat of what the room does. And it's the most fun to be a part of because it's just that blue sky. Well, what if this person only speaks in quotations or whatever it is? And then it's just people in a room riffing together. It, uh, it's pretty magical with that. Season two and onwards, it, it changes because you've set the template. People know what the show is. People have actually seen it. You know, in season one, you don't have any episodes to go back and watch and be like, oh, that's what that actually is. <laughs> season two, you're like, I've seen 10 episodes of this. I get the vibe. Let's see yeah. what we can do and build off of that. So, right. Season one's huge. Season one's huge. Wow. Um, it is interesting how there's like no 24 episode shows anymore. <laughs> I'm watching, rewatching Criminal Minds right now. And it's like 24 episodes a season for like 15 seasons. And it's totally. so much show it's insane mm -hmm. do you know like do you have any i mean i'm sure you have like your own theories and i'm sure there's an actual like legitimate reason why they don't do 24 episodes it's like a lot of work it's a lot of money kind of like these bigger mm -hmm. platforms have taken over but do you have like your own opinions about why that doesn't work and why that does work for some stories yeah it's uh, to get into the nitty-gritty of the tv industry it's more money to shoot 24 episodes obviously you need more established concepts mm -hmm. The streaming services coming in have changed the format. So network TV is not the only game in town anymore. So it is easier for streaming services to 
take a flyer on idea and say, here's 10 episodes. We can afford that. And if it fails, it fails. We go from there. Whereas 24 episodes is a huge commitment when you're talking about a $2 million, $3 million an episode show, which a lot of these shows end up being, you know, because you build these sets, you know, like you go to Grey's Anatomy, they're very, very rarely shooting in a real hospital. That is a very real set that they have built with all the technical equipment that has been vetted by experts and all that kind of stuff. And then, you know, it gets real, real pricey when you're paying actors 24 times as opposed to 10, you know, say with directors, producers, et cetera, et cetera. So cost at the end of the day, but also creatively, it's safer for them. They can take bets on smaller ideas, yeah. wackier ideas. Also, like, a lot of story to, like, put into one season, like, which is why I think it, like, kind of only works for, like, these kind of, like, cult classic favorite shows, like Law and & Order and, like, Criminal Minds, because it's, like, people are obsessed with law enforcement and, like, murder, and they want to know, and there's always different types, whether it's the same or not, yeah. right? And then you have Case of the Week stuff, too, right? That yeah. takes out a huge chunk of it. You know, I had the privilege of working on a hospital show called Saving Hope. It was my first mm-hmm. room I was ever in uh, for season four and season five. And those were 18 episode orders. And even with the re- regular returning cast of eight to 10 characters, even with the guest stars, even with the serialized storytelling, you want to tell, by episode 13, you're like, can we do another liver surgery? Is anyone <laughs> actually going to care anymore? Like, what's going to happen? <laughs> What I wonder I about <laughs> yeah. ER, like yeah. ER is still going, right? No, no, no. Oh, but okay. it did like thirteen seasons, yeah. so thirteen times twenty-four. Yeah, that's over one hundred and sixty hours of content and serialized storytelling they've built in. It's incredible. It's like a Dickens novel times twenty. It really is. <laughs> yeah, I, it is. I can't fathom it. Like, <laughs> yeah, that's. Like, Sorry, I was just going to say that, uh, like, Supernatural just finished, right? Yes. That, and that's yeah. a hugely popular show that started as a Monster of the Week show. And then 16 years later, to take these two brothers and to have places to take that relationship after 16 years, can you imagine what that is? And make it interesting at 18 times a year? Yeah. Oh, I can't talk about Danica's rewatching that show right now. It's so funny to see like the early seasons. It's mm-hmm. mint. Um, yeah. That kind of like leads into this one question I was going to ask you, which is um, there's like a lot of talk from like people all over kind of saying like, you know, there's no new things anymore. A lot of stuff is like remakes or stories told through stories or like a uh, Shakespeare story ter- told in a different way, in a new age way. Um, mm-hmm. And for everyone that's like, saying that how do you feel as someone who writes as well because you write and you direct and you produce and you're a script supervisor and the list kind of keeps going um (laughs) but how do you feel someone who's like a writer do you feel like it is a pressure when you're writing something to create something brand new and exciting or or how do you really deal with like that kind of thing in your ear that's that's a very good question because it kind of gets to the heart of what tv writing is because when you're writing your own stuff, when you're creating a show, obviously you want to make it the most original thing ever. But when you're a TV writer in a room, you are hired to write in your boss's voice. You are there to service that idea. Um, And oftentimes, when you're at episode 14 in an 18 episode order, those shorthands of 
Well, it's speed, but in a hospital. We'll do an episode that, you know, the ambulance can't slow down or whatever. <laughs> that becomes very handy as a shorthand to get into that voice. Right. Because I know how my boss would write that, so I could come up with that and go from there. But if you take probably speed, but as an ambulance, that probably sell actually. <laughs> but if you're pitching that, you have to have the nuance. You have to make it what makes it yours. Like the key to any pitch and what sells is your take on it because mm -hmm. there are only so many ideas, there are only so many genres. I mean, hostile shows, top shows. I mean, uh, can I swear? Sorry. Yes, yeah. <laughs> uh, but even mortician shows, like there are, everything has been done, but it is that unique take, that unique connection that people tune into every week. Like, I think of a show like The Americans, which is a spy show. There have been spy shows forever. They have been a heart of TV since yeah. the 40s. It's just kind of a thing. But the guys who wrote that, one of them worked for the CIA for 12 years in the 80s. So that insight brought to that makes that a really cool idea. And then when you can layer in all those little details into the characters and that truth there, that's what makes it make. So it really is the going the back and forth of it. Like, because if you've been hired to write on the Americans and you haven't worked for the CIA for 10 years, you better do some research or at least know where you can add to your showrunner's voice there mm. to service that. So uh, that's why a lot of people debate on wh whether TV writing is actually an art because it is so mercenary to right. mm. work for someone to wear their story as tightly as possible and then create something is, you know, is that the same as creating a completely unique story on mm -hmm. I think I've heard that from other people that work in different settings on TV sets or in different roles on TV sets. They're like, if you're hired as like a director for a TV show that has like this established story and these established characters, you're really just there to make sure the show happens. You're just like, make sure we stay on time, make sure we keep going, make sure we get everybody out. And that's it. There's like not, I don't want to say yeah. that there's like not a lot of creativity in that, but like if you're in an established show already, you're yeah. kind of just you there. You have to show up. Yeah. yeah that's it. Directing is special too because it is, it, you are like a samurai ronin. You just show up on a show and you get two weeks of prep and two weeks of shooting mm -hmm. and then you get your first cut and that's it. You yeah. know, like there are five other passes of edits after yours and you're lucky if you get, uh, if it's a 42 minute running show, you're lucky if you get 10, 12% of the show that is your unique vision that you want to add that hasn't been cut around by the networks, by the producers, by the showrunner, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So, you know, so many. Yeah. yeah. Again, like even it's the same as a staff writer. Like the process goes, uh, you break the story, you get sent to outline, you deliver your outline to your boss, who then rewrites it <laughs> to how they want it. You get then sent to draft with the notes. Right. You deliver your draft. Your boss then rewrites that again over and over and over again. And if you're a staff writer, who, which is someone who has been hired just to do that one script as opposed to a producer, a consulting producer who's there for the entire show, you're, you're gone. That's it. Like once you deliver your second draft, done. You're, you may have sole credit on that show, but the fact of the matter is you have been rewritten, rewritten by four, five, six, seven people 
and that's even before the actors get it on the floor and they want to start changing lines and pronouns and whatever it is. You know? <laughs> All the little nitty gritty of it. There's so many steps in a network show. Yeah. Yeah. It's bananas. It's everywhere. It's the nature of spending two million dollars per episode on an episode of TV. Like, it's it's silly, really. <laughs> you see why so many people go to reality or uh, go to your know, docu series. Like they are just a little more cheaper and just a little easier to, mm -hmm. to handle. You know, Definitely. people love stories. <laughs> right. Uh, what about in your own writing? How do you feel about that? Like when you're doing your own. It's a great way in, like I said, like it's a great way to get the ball rolling. Like you just say, I want to do this, but this. Yeah. And then you go from there and you, that little voice inside your head takes over and you go, yeah. hopefully, hopefully that takes yeah. over. And you're not just staring there. Like, Why doesn't this work? <laughs> yeah. It's like an undergrad student in first year, just unsure. Yeah. <laughs> well, I, I'm curious about that too. Like, because you guys are both choreographers. Like, how, how does that work? that too like is there yeah. a way in you know the shortcuts in or do you just have to <laughs> brainstorm uh, i think it's yeah i mean there is kind of like a you're not really inventing the wheel right like at this point i think that's all kind of what everyone needs to know right like what you're doing is probably not going to be as impact or like it's going to be impactful for the moment but it might be something from before that might not have been as impactful so i think it's um just kind of try and find something that you're interested in and then just keep like i think the deeper you get into an idea and the more concentrated the idea is into like this little mini thing the more interesting it is and sometimes that helps create new possibilities and new things that maybe is one way someone looked at it but it's like one very side off off the way to look at something does that make sense yeah mm -hmm. yeah what about you corinne um are you asking if there's like different ways into choreography or if there's well, like there's like, only so many ways that people have moved. Like, right. How do you how do you start? Only so many possibilities. Yeah, yeah. your bodies yeah. can only move in so many ways. Um, mm. Yeah, I think it's like what Rainey said about research is like very important because especially as like emerging choreographers and we're still in that emerging category <laughs> for we will be for a while at this rate, you know. Um, uh, especially when a lot watching a lot of new emerging choreographers, you can there's this moment where you can tell where the research stopped or there's a moment where they didn't do enough editing, if that makes sense. Mm. And I think it's really important to continue past that point. And sometimes it's hard to see that from the inside, but it's really important to continue past that point and to have multiple versions of a project because the first time you put it on stage is going to be very different than two years later. And I think it's important to remind yourself as like an emerging person and like a new artist, <clears throat> excuse me, that it takes years and years and years and years to get there. Like when I saw, oh, I'm not going to remember the name of the play right now. Anyways, I'd seen this play. And I was like blown away by it. And then I got a chance like six months later to meet the woman who wrote it at uh, this like fundraising thing. And when I asked them about it and I was like gushed over them and gushed over the work, they were like, this is like the third or fourth version that we've put up. And this is like the fifth year that we've done it. So like, we appreciate you saying this, but like, it's been a long, and they're like, that's what you need to remember that, that it's been like a really, really long uh, process. And so to like hear that from people that you admire and to hear that from people just like, even them being like maybe like four or five years older than me, like not that far. They're not like in their fifties and their sixties and doing it forever. They're just like just a few years ahead to be like reminding you to do this. I think it's important. Yeah, that's beautiful. 
I, it's, it's, it makes me think of like something Dan Levy said recently about how uh, Schitt's Creek would have been canceled at most networks in the first two seasons and it never, never would have become what it would have become. And that's the inherent flaw of TV. Like mm-hmm. you have seven days in most shows to shoot one 42 minute episode and that's mm-hmm. it. You don't get another kick at the can. Usually you get about two hours, two and a half hours per scene. And then that scene is gone forever. Hopefully, because if it's come back, that it means you didn't do your job and it cost you someone a lot more money to get everyone back to try it again. <laughs> so it doesn't matter if it's 5.30 in the morning and you haven't had a cup of coffee yet. You have to show up on the day and make sure everything works. And that's it. Mm-hmm. And hopefully you get a season two to figure out something. Else. Hopefully you get that chance to move through to season five, hopefully. And then figure out exactly what makes your show special. Because, you know, I mean, I remember watching those first two seasons of uh, Shit's Creek and being like, it's fine. Like, <laughs> I wasn't a huge fan of the, the name either. Yeah, yeah. Um, I was just like, yeah, this is, yeah, this is uh, cute. And then you get into those later seasons and you're like, yeah. this is pretty special. <laughs> yeah, it gets so deep in the, in the final two seasons there, eh? Yeah. yeah. So. Not a lot of shows get that, especially in the streaming age now. Like, Netflix tends to cap it at three three years. Mm-hmm. Uh, you get um, that's mostly fiscal because most showrunner and actor contracts are for three seasons, yeah. and then if it's successful, they can ask for more money. Um, ask for more, yeah. Yeah, and uh, but it's also because streaming nature of it is keeping subscribers, so you keep the shiny stuff. That, uh, yeah. New yeah. things coming in every week, right? That is like a weird. I think like almost to their not to their benefit is that they're because they're having so many new shows come in it's hard for people to get like hooked for long periods of time on one show you know mm-hmm. like even like the crown the newest season came out season four mm-hmm. and it's a netflix original is that right yeah, yeah it's a netflix original and so that's made it past the season the three season kind of like mark let's say but um it is like people are obsessed with it because it's you know it's 10 episodes it moves so freaking slow it's like a (laughs) hundred just shots of people staring out dark windows with horses but like (laughs) uh, yeah it is it's it's hard for people in damp room feeling things like uh, a lot going on yeah but for some reason people are like hooked by the way anyway that's like a whole other conversation (laughs) are you not a fan of the crown (laughs) i do i love the crown (laughs) I I do love The Crown, but it is interesting to me how, like, it, it moves so fucking slow. Like, people used to say Mad Men moves slow, and I think The Crown moves slower than Mad Men. So, <laughs> um, but it, it is almost like they're, it's hard for them because they're constantly producing so much content for them, to, for people to find kind of shows that will have these, like, long, like, what is the longest running show on Netflix that we know of right now, or that has the most amount of seasons? I don't think it's a Netflix original, that's for sure. Yeah, yeah it'll be exactly. It's not but out of yeah. Netflix original. I can't think of what, a Netflix original show that would have more than, like, I don't know, like eight seasons. Yeah, and Thanks. yeah, The Crown is special too because mm-hmm. Peter Morgan is such a big deal that like mm-hmm. he sold all six seasons. Like he doesn't have to pitch every year. He sold the whole thing right away. So he's like, I'm gonna make sixty hours of TV about the entirety yeah. of The Crown, and. Because he's Peter Morgan, you're allowed to do that. But right. you know, if I try to go with Netflix, I get pepper spray. 
And I've had shows on Netflix. I've worked for shows that have been on Netflix. I have a question uh, about Netflix for you. Did you uh, submit to their pitch day? I did, yeah. I did have not you? get it. Oh, oh okay. <laughs> no. I mean, you see, there was like 10,000 applications. Wow. Like that. Yeah. Oh, I. I've heard there's still running. some people that haven't heard back yet. And I'm assuming yeah. that means it's a good thing, right? I don't know. It's, it's better than what happened at the CBC earlier this year. Did you guys know? No, what no, happened? what happened? Oh, the CBC did their own uh, COVID style pitch thing. Um, and basically, they released the winners, but they put it all in one Google document with everyone's contact information. <gasps> and they just put it out live. <laughs> Yeah, so everyone can see everyone who got in, and like you see that you know there's so and so who's had four shows on the CBC is applying for this relief thing, and you're like, Sestress doing it, or there's the classic, you know, that person has the same last name as someone, and you wonder what ha that had to do with anything, or, right? Know. It just lots of smoke and yeah. How many people got the CBC one? Like how many out of? Oh, I can't remember. They were doing their whole thing was they wanted covid related content whether it was a podcast or a short or mm -hmm. eight different genres of tv or film or whatever so they did a varying number i think it was a maximum of six in each category they got development okay. deals for mm -hmm. those ideas yes yeah was cbc gem part of that too like shorts yeah mm -hmm. i saw some dance mm -hmm. films that get on there rainy was there something we should talk about oh, yeah yeah, uh, yep. yeah. Mm -hmm. uh it is interesting to me that like what we're like seven months into COVID and I've already seen one movie advertised that's all about COVID and I'm like I, I thought I was like I thought all of like TV and film was supposed to be like behind in shooting from like this situation and like there's a movie with the the kid from Riverdale yeah. I was really hunting for that just kidding I knew it right off the top of my head <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> the kid from Riverdale <laughs> is like in like the like a COVID it's like a full-length feature movie I'm not yeah, interested yeah. in that. Yeah. Uh, no. What's his name? Sam Levinson, the guy who uh, created Euphoria, did a, yeah. uh, a a movie with Zendaya during the thing. It's getting Oscar buzz right now because yeah, no it's just the two of them, yeah. right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's like a COVID romance, whatever that means. But, yeah, it's like uh, they're stuck inside or something. I, I think I did read about that. Yeah, like but yeah, there's all of it. Like NBC has a. Uh, it's got like, some something corny like comedy in quarantine and there's not like comedians living by themselves during lockdown <laughs> or whatever yeah, yeah. Right. i don't yeah. know like if that's are we really like after we get out of this are we really going to want to just binge a bunch of COVID content no. that's like what my question is are we going to have time and then is that what we're going to be wanting to binge <laughs> mm -hmm. like it doesn't mm -hmm. seem like something that is realistic to me to just be like asking for quarantine content that's only going to be relevant for this like this period you know well, that, I think at least the bigger question that I was asking people the other day of like, do you think this is actually going to, when everyone gets the vaccine and we brush by the fact there's like a million dead people in the world, yeah. do you think that it's going to be something that actually changed anything? Or are we just going to be like, wow, that was a weird two years, three years, four years? Yeah. I think art, I think you're right that no one's going to want to go back to COVID art. They're not going to be like, It'll be a time capsule for sure, but it won't be anything that 
I mean, maybe, maybe this is what'll happen. It'll be like created. And then in like 10 years when there's another pandemic or like in 10 years when we can like look back on it as old elderly people, that's when it'll all like come up and coming again. Right. True. Yeah. Kind of like at the beginning of quarantine, like all the movies about pandemics, all of a sudden everyone was like binging like the top 10 <laughs> pandemic movies or yeah. like the last man on earth was like binged the whole time. So. Yep. Yeah. I also think that the stuff that will come, like the artwork or the movies or the TV or whatever that comes out of this period or specifically about this period of time, I only think it will be good in 10 years hmm. because there will be enough space, right. enough distance from the experience to actually write it and for it to be good. I think stuff that's yeah. being written about it now is garbage because we're in the middle of it and there's like nothing to like ground you or like to, there's no research into something deeper about it right it's, it's all service level point. it is a gimmick and it's like yeah. i have no interest in watching any of it to be honest because i'm still yeah. locked in my house <laughs> who is it um, oh it was margaret atwood at the start of the, the pandemic it was like here's all the pandemic i've lived through and how it's affected every single one of my books and i was like i hadn't thought about that you know like yeah growing up when schools and neighborhoods closed because of polio outbreaks or mm-hmm. the hong kong flu which was big in the 60s or, or whatever like like someone described uh, Handmaid's Tale as a pandemic book, like mm. just being forced into these little cloisters of, her entire series, the Orcs and Crake series, the three books there is like a separation of classes and who can afford to live and who's like does STEM research and who is trying to make the world a better place. And then like the others. And then when mm. that all comes crumbling down, right? which is like really similar (laughs) um having just got back from shooting tom how do you feel about this i mean ontario just went into lockdown and they've shut down tons of things tons of people are out of work but a big industry that is still moving ahead is a film and tv in ontario so how do you feel about the government like allowing these kind of like big capitalist projects from filming versus like and blocking like the individual smaller producer and filmmakers or like creators oh man it's it's all over the place it's i i don't know how it has been specifically in ontario because i've been in newfoundland since right but i know being a member of a guild and having friends that are members of the guild that the unions really wanted people to keep working because it's a whole thing. People don't want to be unemployed. People do want to, but they do want to do it safely. Um, so the producers uh, union, which is a CMPA, um, has been trying to negotiate with all these guilds to get everyone back to work and try to get back to work safely. And there's the other big, you know, elephant in the room of the fact that film in Ontario brings in more than a billion dollars in revenue every year. Like it is not like it's not a small thing. Like people specifically come to Toronto to do all this. Netflix is investing hundreds of millions of dollars down in the um, was it in the studio district down at Carlaw and commissioners there. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's a lot of infrastructure that is being built to support all this stuff. So on the one hand. I think it would be naive to think that they were going to just shut that down. Mm-hmm. Uh, whether or not that's a good thing, I don't know. Um, I feel lucky having been able to find a job in this pandemic because, God, it's a nightmare out there. And I hadn't had a job in specifically in a writing room in four years. 
going through all that. So this was a very lucky time for me. And if this had shut down, I don't know what kind of gut punch that would have been for me. But mm -hmm. honestly, I, yeah, I, I don't know. The, the only thing you can hope is they're doing the test properly. They're testing them frequently, as I know they are from my friends who are taking sometimes five to seven tests a week. And just make sure that they are respecting the workers on set at mm -hmm. any point in time, you know, not forcing them to do anything they feel uncomfortable to do. Mm -hmm. um, so, yeah, I, I, it's real tough. Uh, I don't know how you say that. I, I, I don't know. Yeah. Uh, yeah. yeah. <laughs> I'm interested to know, like, how you go mm. about finding work in such a precarious moment, if you don't mind jumping into that. Totally. Um, well, I have to thank my agent for helping me out with that. And it's, I'm very lucky and fortunate to have an agent uh, at this time because that's one of the few gatekeeper ways into this industry. Um, but I got this job because the long way back to it was I was a social media um, PA, a production assistant on a CB series called the CBC series called the Book of Negroes back in 2015. I ended up working for David Delavera and Clement Virgo, who are two Canadian filmmakers or are very proud Canadian filmmakers who work almost exclusively in Canada. Um, and from there, they put me in contact with uh, Ewan, who was releasing it. And I made a contact with uh, Armin Leo, who is now at Blue Ice, which is the production company that is producing uh, this realtor. And I had pitched them some ideas earlier in the year and I had gotten in touch with them. And through all that, they said they were hiring for this new show that was coming and I interviewed and got it through there. So it is a really circuitous route to find those relationships to even get to the interview to then hopefully get it from there. Um, right. And to, it's up, down and around and all over the place. So. Yeah, it is. It, it does seem to be like who you know or who you've worked with in the past in the TV mm -hmm. and film industry. Yeah, for better or worse. Uh, yeah, there are some people that some people that have been failing upwards for their careers and they're <laughs> not great to work with. But a lot of the people, especially the people on this realtor, they are really, really, really lovely people who have worked incredibly hard and really care about what they're putting out. And I think it shows in the end product. Um, because when I was hired, my boss said, you know, he has a no assholes policy. And, you know, he, he, it's easy to say that, but now having been on that show since May, I can say that they suffer no fools. They do not put up with people who just want to belittle people or have come to the industry to feel like they're important, which I feel like happens a lot, especially in film and TV. So, yeah. um, is there like a role that you uh well you've been doing the script supervising now for mm -hmm. this past for the surrealtors but like we talked about before you like have a lot of different roles that you play like between writer director and everything um is there mm -hmm. a role that you prefer and like what's the reason and is there do you get more out of one of the roles i guess is a better question um well the most fun there is in my life is when i'm in a room like physically in a room with other writers because that feeling of working together and pushing towards a story and just riffing off of each other is, is it, 
it is like there's one giant brain and we're all just little connections between all of it and firing off each other. And that, that is special. Um, yeah. This realtor was a completely digital Zoom, uh, Zoom room. So that happens, but with these little side steps and, oh, sorry, I interrupted you there. And it just yeah. <laughs> weird. Uh, so being in a room is incredible. Uh, that's the best feeling. Second to that is directing, being on the floor, talking to people about how to make this thing real, whether it's your costume designer who is building these personalities through clothes, whether it's your gaffer who's doing the lighting or the DP who's lensing anything, or your actors trying to literally get inside your character. That, that is a cool moment. That mm. is something that's uh, very, I don't know, you feel very alive and very in it, which as artists is very important, you know? Mm -hmm. It's not very easy to get all the way inside of something all the time, but you right. know, when you're surrounded by people pushing towards something, it's, uh, it's excellent. Uh, writing's definitely the hardest of it. I struggle with it every day. Uh, my partner will tell you that I'm a miserable son of a bitch sometimes, <laughs> most of the time. Uh, but it's how you get towards the thing. You know, if you push the ball up the hill, so hopefully you can roll it down the other side. Uh, and writing is that. But, do you think yeah. it's because it's like the one that's you're by yourself? You have like are stuck alone with your in your own thoughts with and your own devil yeah. and angel? Totally. Well, and I find that if you're with people who are artistically inclined, who yeah. like you, who support you, they're not gonna shit on the thing you just spent however long working on. They're gonna wanna make it better. But when right. you're by yourself, you convince yourself, no, these people are actually not gonna be your friends anymore if you turn in something like that. You know, okay. that's something you have to get through really quickly. And thankfully, TV writing, because you're rewritten so much, it does take the sting out of it. You do see what they've done, why they've done it, and why they think it's better or why it is better. And that is a huge growth spurt that you get as a writer in a very, very short period of time. But still by yourself, you're always like, could this be better? Is this even interesting? Am I the right person to tell this story? Who cares? You know, these are all questions that everyone thinks about in any kind of art form. But uh, right. writing, you're all by yourself thinking about it. Yeah. <laughs> cool, fun. Right. Like, you're kind of like weaving this tale in your own brain and just like trying to spit it out on paper. Well, uh, the, the cliche that, you know, a, a script isn't actually a, a work of art. It's not literature because it is a blueprint for something which is not true, by the way. Like, it, mm -hmm. There are some scripts you read where like, that is a work of art. Um, <laughs> but at the same time, a pilot is just the seed that the whole show is supposed to spring from, and that makes it very difficult. You have to establish the tone, you have to establish the characters, you have to mm -hmm. establish the central conflict, and hopefully you do it in less than 50 pages. Some people will say 60. 60 is fine, don't go above 60, but you really want to be like 50-ish. Right. Mm -hmm. So people can just flip through it. They want to be like, what happens next? But at the same time, that actually has to matter. You can't just be setting things up because then right. it's not captivating. And the so characters, right? Like people have mm -hmm. to care about how yeah. important to you is like creating this like character development and like creating like um, these like really like strong, complicated characters. Like how much does that go into your process? Oh yeah, I mean, it's why we watch TV, right? Like mm -hmm. the people, like I, I'm not sure what some of your favorite shows are, but mine have always been the people that I really like hanging out with, that I find interesting or captivating, even if I don't like them 
as actual people. Uh, so it, some might say that, you know, writing TV is writing character and writing yeah. relationships, especially in serialized storytelling. But yeah, that's, that's kind of got to be all of it, right? Because your characters are in the show. And that it is a reason why they say that, you know, your lead actor is number one on the call sheet. They are the person that delivers that every single week and they have to set the tone for everyone on set. You have to create that person <laughs> or you have to create that role for that actor to create that and then go from there, which is a film to do. But yeah, it's, it's, it's very, very difficult. And if I'm being honest, it's something that I've maybe done once or twice in my career and I've been writing for 12 years. Right. Those characters that you're like, I get that person. I find that person really interesting and here's what they want, why they want it and why that's compelling. Like that is a, a very difficult thing to come up with. Um, it's everything. Yeah. yeah. Do you have a specific character you tend to like lean to when you like you spoke about like people characters you like? Like, what are some of yours that you like lean towards? Um, one of my favorite shows, in fact, one of the first shows I ever spec when I wrote a, a spec is a episode that of an existing TV show that you don't work on that you want to show your style and your tone and how you can mm -hmm. emulate. Um, I love uh, You're the Worst on FX. That is one of my favorite shows of all time. Jimmy Shive Overly is this British piece of shit. He is an author. <laughs> he is a womanizer with a foot fetish and a, uh, and a what do they call the when you have you sleep sleep apnea device <laughs> choking. Just, just, yeah, just a needy narcissist. He's a terrible person, and right. the show is fun because his partner in that show, Gretchen, is even more of a needy narcissist. And it's funny to have a show where these two narcissists have to kind of bridge that gap and form a relationship with each other because they're both the they Really, they just fit so perfectly together. And that's so fun to keep hitting those heads together. And you can see all the stories that could come out of that. So that's kind of what you hope for when you come up with a character. But that, that's, that's kind of a touchstone character for me, those guys. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah. yeah. What about you guys? Like, what do you guys like in TV? Like, because TV is very different. You can have the mm -hmm. streaming, you can have cable, you can have reality, docuseries, you know, all that kind of stuff. What do you guys like to watch? Because it changes. In TV, well, I was obsessed. I was actually going to bring this up when you talked about how um, for The Crown they pitched the six seasons. I thought that they pitched the OA for five seasons too which was then canceled after two years, which the OA was like one of my favorite series yeah. on Netflix. I thought that was like, we weren't even in the first, we weren't even like deep into the story yet. And they canceled it two seasons in. It was like, there was so, the season two, I don't know if you've seen it, but the season two finale was like mind blowing to me. It was like really? so meta and like so, yeah, they like come, it's very interesting. But so I was, that's like one of my favorite shows and the main woman in that show is good, but also like how they like the characters like switch through these different bodies is really interesting to me. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, but then in terms of like, if you think about like comedy, like I also like Mose is like my favorite character that's like ever created. And it's like this like one, it's Michael Scherf, who's like the creator of The Office that just plays like a crazy Dwight Schrute's brother, you know? Yeah, yeah. So, <laughs> yeah, I, I don't perfect. know. It's like all different like levels of, of things, you know? Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Yeah. It's funny you mentioned the OA though, because that literally is character. That is yeah. just, yes. it sets everything yep. from there, you know. I know, I need to rewatch uh, it. It's so good. 
Didn't they just do the, is it Christmas special? Did they do a movie? Or did, I thought they no. did like an extra. No, it's just no. the two. Just like two seasons and it cut. And there's like all these like theories about it because it was originally, because it was Brad Pitt's um, production company that bought it. Right. Yeah. Plenty. And it's Brittany, oh. um, I can't even think, it's not Brittany Murphy, Brittany, um, forget her last name right now. And it's uh, her creator. It's like her and the main the actress. Uh, I don't Zukowski think. sisters, right? No, 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 no. It's um, oh, I forget what the the guy's name is, but it's a guy and like the main girl who's like an actress, who's the main actress in it. But they wrote, they pitched it, and it was like a full like five season thing, and then mm. they got canceled after two seasons. Oof. Pardon? Yeah. Mm. Oh, I just said oof. <laughs> oh, I was asking who the who's the other lead opposite of her. Oh, the guy? Yeah. Or the, in the first season. It kind of changes because there's like a new lead in the second season. Mm. Yeah. Anyway, Corinne, what about you? What, what do you, any <laughs> oh my TV God. show? Karen? I feel like that I'm going to get so judged right now. No, no, go ahead. <laughs> um, I was going to let you know, I watched like six seasons of Vanderpump Rules at the start of this. <laughs> like we have watched so much of everything. So okay. Yeah. I have no judgment here. Yeah. Um, well, I just recently learned that if you the CBS All Access app has all 40 seasons of Survivor on it. Wow. <laughs> Wait, how many seasons? Four zero. Did you know that that's, oh. there's 40 seasons of Survivor? And it started in 20, or 2000, the year 2000. So they did 40 seasons in 20 years. And I think it's still going. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Super popular. So wow. I'm on season 15. Mm-hmm. Whoa. <laughs> And that's interesting because that's like reality TV show, but I mean, reality has like, they create characters in the editing room, right? Yes. Which and is very different than like writing characters. Yes. Knowing like, someone that works on a reality TV show, it's like all made in the editing room, right? Because right. they just shoot and shoot and shoot and shoot and shoot and you have 40 hours for one episode, which is going to be 45 minutes long. It's literally mm-hmm. all down in the editing room. Yeah. It's crazy when something like Love Island too, where it's like they're there for like a month. <laughs> It's really, and they're just shooting for 24 hours a day for a month. And you yeah. end up getting like 30 hours of show out of it. Like it's insane how effective that is. Mm-hmm. So if any of your artists listening want to sell out, come up with a concept for a reality show. Sell that format worldwide mm-hmm. and then go do your art on the side. That'll finance <laughs> everything, yeah. everything. It's big money in reality TV. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Um, so I've been watching a lot of Survivor, um, but it's, I also like sometimes don't pay attention to it and just keep watching. Like it's a lot of background noise for myself, you know? Yeah. I've been Mm -hmm. like, my roommate and I have had to isolate for two weeks, um, unfortunately. And so it's like, what else do you do? Right? Yeah, totally. Yeah. Mm -hmm. There's this new thing of like new thing, like the New Yorker called it a new thing, but ambient TV, which is just something you put on in the background. Like, yeah. I think like Emily in Paris is like a perfect background TV show where you're just like, there's pretty lights and it's not going to have any too many loud noises and you can just go through it all. So. Right. <laughs> also, I feel like Tom, me and you had a really in-depth conversation about the show You one time. Oh, yeah. <laughs> which is like one of like such a guilty pleasure show. Oh, God, it's so good. It's so, <laughs> I, I, I'm obsessed with that show. There's a new I, season I, coming out. Mm-hmm. Yeah, what? they just started shooting it. Oh, uh, I don't like. Where could it go from here? Well, you don't think oh. it could go someplace? There's like, two now. It's a Bonnie and Clyde situation. Yeah, but like, it's they're stalking someone. Like, it's that's all that it is. It's creepy. It's oh. st- they're stalking people. 
the way they ended season two, I know exactly where they're going with season three. And it's going to be excellent. Uh, I'm mostly just saying this to like be rude. I also loved the show. Yeah. <laughs> I, I like yeah. don't know if I can handle that actress being in another like season. Like I got so many references saying that I looked exactly like her that I like I feel like a little bit lost in my own personality. <laughs> like am I trying to kill people? Uh, yeah, yeah. She's in the uh, Haunting of Hill House. I know. Too. Yeah, she's and in that, that new so, show. So good. Um, but yeah, like. What is it about, what was the last TV moment you can think of where you were like, oh, I like this show. I like it. that hooked you into a show. What was that moment for you? It was a big question. So like, I, I, I don't blame you if you don't have anything like off yeah, the I'm trying to, I'm trying to think what even I've watched in the moment. I'm also trying to think of something that I haven't rewatched because I'm also like, that's something that I'm doing a lot lately because it's comforting, right? Mm -hmm. Rewatching a lot of things for like comfort. <laughs> Well, what do you rewatch? Uh, well, I rewatched all of The Simpsons. Like all thirty seasons. Wow, it's on, they're you all might on... be the only person I know who's done that. <laughs> they're all on Disney Plus. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Holy crap! That's yeah, and lot. I did it backwards. You can. So do I started that. it. I started the newest, not like the. I started the newest season on the first episode, and then went twenty nine, twenty eight, twenty. Okay. Went backwards, so it gets like progressively like. The new seasons, you you can relate to them because they're like in your lifetime. Yeah. Then there's that weird middle ground where they're bad because you don't really know what's going on, and then they're mm -hmm. like the old originals, yeah. and you relate to them in a d different way because they're just so yeah. like quintessential and classic, mm -hmm. which was interesting. Yeah. Cool. And you see think, characters kind of like devolve, which is also I found very interesting. Yeah. <laughs> like Marge just becomes like nobody really like she is like so different in the old newer seasons than in the first like 10 she's just like nothing mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. yeah if we, i was just talking about like <laughs> 30 seasons kind of went in on it <laughs> um if i was just talking about like comedies i mean the like let's just do a standard like the office i feel like is such a fan favorite and it's because like these characters are so problematic but also like so loving and you like fall in love with them because they also it also like shows that people are like caring deep down i think like you know there's like so much they do so many bad things like the character of angela in the office is so problematic for so many reasons mm -hmm. <laughs> and you just like you still like want her and dwight to be happy together um yeah. whereas like I mean, like always sunny in philadelphia the reason you love the show is because they're just like they're never gonna get better and that's yeah. just like what the, what the thing is right like they're they're never gonna show any amounts of growth if anything they're like like you said devolving like it's just getting worse <laughs> we just watched the first episode of season one and mac is like a good person in it it's like very crazy it's really um, so funny. yeah he's like the reasonable one and you're like what is happening <laughs> um but so like those shows were I think that you like see, especially because we're all like kind of sad right now, I think. It's nice to see characters, it's nice to laugh, and it's nice to see like you heart warm. You know, it's nice to feel like emotionally happy about something. I can't watch Pixar movies right now. I got three minutes oh, into yeah. Finding Dory and I had to turn it off because I was a blubbering mess. <laughs> mm -hmm. So I think yeah. it's like nice to watch, like Corinne said, watch rewatching shows for the comfort level and mm -hmm. also like shows that you know are going to make you feel good and not shows that are going to make you 
sad and question and spiral in the middle of the night until four in the morning. Mm -hmm. Totally. That's mm -hmm. Ted Lasso for me. I've watched it twice so far. <laughs> it's just, oh. everybody who's listening whose parents forgot to pick them up in soccer practice, like this is your show. <laughs> it's it. Like, it's like Paddington level of like good feels mm -hmm. watching it. And you just feel okay about yourself at the end of it. And that's hard <laughs> a lot of the time yeah. to just be okay with yourself. Um, yeah. yeah. Jason Sudeikis is like so lovely. I love him as an actor yeah. and as a comedian. <laughs> it's so hard to do that without being corny. It is mm. so difficult to be sincere. It's like everyone wants irony. Everyone wants cynicism. Everyone wants jokes that make fun of something. And so few people can just take that and turn it into something pure and fun uh, that I'm amazed that that show exists also the fact that it's based on a nbc promo is insane <laughs> the promos are not exist. yeah oh so good oh it's so good well wait what was it an nbc wasn't ted lasso originally an snl sketch i heard that wrong maybe it was i don't actually know that my, I, maybe I, my I, assumption is that it is yeah i mean yeah jason sudeikis was on snl and yeah uh, i know it's, it's an best. nbc promo when nbc got the premier league they, uh, yeah came up with mm. a bit but uh yeah so good i have a question about sincerity do you mm. are you saying it's hard to do on camera or it's hard to write or it's hard to do in real life it's hard to sustain without it being saccharine mm. it's hard to if so often you'll think of like those 80s sitcoms of like a very special episode where they all just hug and laugh at the end it's like oh i feel good and it doesn't feel real but right. like to create a character that is earnestly his entire goal is to make people the best people they can be as a coach is an incredibly difficult thing to pull off because it doesn't feel like that character is real because i don't know that many people like that in real life <laughs> um, and the people i do know like that are kind of hard to be around for too long um, <laughs> So uh, it, it can rub people the wrong way. It's, uh, right. it's a very dangerous in line court. And the, the big thing when you're creating TV is notes. Everyone gives notes, right? So the room will give notes, producers give notes, and the network gives notes. And as a rule, it tends that the network gives more notes out of fear uh, mm -hmm. than anyone else because they're the most removed from the day-to-day -day process of it that they have an image of what they were sold and then they have the content that they're seeing and they need assurances that everything is going to line up at the end of the day. So a lot of their notes end up being like, well, can we do this just in case? Can we shoot all this just in case? And it comes from a very good place. But at the end of the day, it can end up watering things down. Um, or uh, sometimes there are networks that have really good noters who do make shows better. They're, uh, Sci-Fi actually has a couple that have been really great at uh, shaping everything, but at the end of the day, walking a thin line, especially a tonal line like that, can be very difficult if people don't have faith in it, um, and it can end up muddying it a little bit to the point where it doesn't land where it needs to land in order for it to be effective and not be saccharine. Mm -hmm. So, mm -hmm. yeah, it's uh, it's a weird, weird, weird <laughs> system. It's, you know, the making a, a horse by committee, you get a camel. That's kind of like TV. <laughs> Trying to make 
a film that is also, you know. Right. Mm -hmm. Um, you talked a little bit about the people like in these, in your packet, you sent us about these people that are in the room and like how artists, I think you say the artists are like the most lived in or like people in the rooms are the most lived in. What do you, what do you mean by that in terms of like, why do you think artists are just like lived in people and what does lived in mean? Uh, lived in, I think it's artists are people who were constantly being hit over the head with their limitations and their shortcomings and their mm-hmm. their own character. Uh, and to push through that is a very, very scary thing. Uh, I'm not very good at it. It's something that I need repeated practice at to be okay or to just stare at flaws in myself that I don't like and either accept them or change them and not just kind of ignore them. Artists, uh, the people I know are the people who push through, acknowledge, change those things and they be, uh, they become themselves at a rate that uh, I don't know it just becomes more lived in really it's they're the people who you notice that are fully more fully formed because of the shortcomings of the holes they find themselves they find inside themselves um, but yeah mm-hmm. kind of um sorry did I cut you off Rennie no no go no. ahead um going off of that um this idea that you'll never be like completely fulfilled or your art is never really finished how does that kind of um affect your process as a writer or a director yeah oh i, I heard a great story the other day of uh, the screenwriter for um rebel without the Co- rebel without a cause the james dean movie uh, was asked 40 years after the movie came out to go to ucla to do a class and he dusted off the script read it once through and crossed out a couple of lines. This script's been a classic for 40 years and he's still changing it. And he's going to literally teach people about it. It's changing. Uh, that's just the nature of everything. Like anytime you open up a Word document and you reread it, you're like, oh, that, that clunks a little in my head. There's a better way I can shape this, the way I can move forward. Um, it's been my experience that that is what life has been for me. Well, you're like, okay, I've got a handle on this. And then you'll go to do the thing that you think you have a handle on and you realize you have no idea what you're doing again. It just kind of cycles over and over and over again. Uh, it's maddening. I hate it. Am I crazy here? Is that something that you guys no. do? I, I don't know. You're not, no, you're not crazy, yes. Okay. Yeah, I was like, no. <laughs> just, yeah. Okay. Okay. Spirals, column spiraling. I don't know, like, what's it like for for dance though? Because it is such a live thing, can you come back to it? Is it how does that work? Yeah, I think you can come back to it. Like, can you come back to? Sorry, can you come back to like fixing it and stuff? Like, as like a as a performer or as a choreographer or as a creator? Well, things never never being finished, really. Yeah, yeah, like things Mm. never being static yeah I think it's important that you come back to it mm. if you're like put something on stage and you're like this was perfect there's like a big disconnect from you and your what you're doing I think right because I think there's this idea that like you should never really be happy or like you should never be like 100% happy with the thing that you do because then you're you've mastered it and it's like you don't need to work anymore Mm. which I think is a dangerous idea. Yeah. 
I think there, but yeah, as a choreographer, as a creator, but as a performer, I think it's possible to like, especially someone who's been on tour, when you're on tour, you just like are performing the same thing. Yeah. And there's only so many possibilities in like the, what you, like we talked about before, like there's only so many possibilities of like the information you've been given from your, like kind of like what you talked about in terms of like showrunners. You can only really like live in this one bubble or like you've performed something maybe like a hundred times. Probably in the first 50 times, that was probably all the times you're probably going to do differently in each thing. Right. Um, not speaking about like maybe something happens on the stage that like wasn't supposed to happen. And in, in that terms, it's like all about being present and just like reacting to things. But in terms of like performing a piece that's been performed a hundred times, I think like you get to a point where you're just like, I can't perform this anymore because it's getting boring for me. And then things start to like fall. And when those things start to falter, that's like different. And that's kind of like when you should like be leaving the show because you're like kind of like at this point of like, okay, this is good. This is routine. I can't find anything new. This is done. Which is very different as like a choreographer or a creator because you're right. constantly changing things. But for shows that like Broadway shows that are really set or even like maybe like if you're a backup dancer, I'm sure things get very kind of lackadaisical for you. So what's the high then? Like what's the, what's the, the peak of what you guys experience as artists. I'm always curious about what the best of the best is for people. Uh, in terms of like what the, sorry, what the best of the best is for like where, where we want to For you as artists, like personally, like what, what is the moment for you where you're like, this is why I do this. This is what I mm. like the most out of what I do. Hmm. I think when something is like in creation, even, it doesn't even have to be like final moment in creation when something just is working when mm -hmm. something finally works after like you know throwing like a rock at a wall a hundred different times and it finally like breaks in the right way i think mm -hmm. that is like what is like beautiful because you're like you've tried so many different possibilities and it's finally starting to work and your like vision is starting to come to life mm -hmm. i could be in like creation creation is like the best part for me I like the performing is like lovely. It's great. It, it makes you feel good. It's like why a lot of people get into the industries, I think. Um, but I think like being in creation is so lovely because you're changing, you're working together, kind of like being in that script room. You're like bouncing ideas off of it. And when something works and you like can see it forming and you can see everything like starting to work, that's like really beautiful to me. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. The first place my mind went when you asked that question was like, being on set you know right. I really love being on set like on shoot days or in rehearsal and research and getting to that point it's mm. not usually the final product for me it's like nice to get there and to see your ideas come to fruition but that doesn't I don't think that brings me the, the most joy mm. and what's lacking for me right now is that we don't have that opportunity to be creative with each other in the same way that like brings so much joy. Yeah. You know, yeah. there's no rehearsal space for us right now. There's no, and if there is, you can't do the things that you want to do. You can't be connected to those people physically. And so that hampers or damper, what, am I, what word am I looking for? Hinders. Hinders. <laughs> There's some damp, I don't know, whatever. <laughs> it kind of hinders your movement and it hinders the possibilities of where you can go because now you're like stuck in this physical box of your, A, your own body and a, like a physical space that is now has to be different. 
So yeah. Yeah. yeah, for me, it's also like creation and research and being on set. Um, yeah. 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 I wonder if that's ever going to really come back, if the space is going to reemerge. Like for Writer's Room, for example, the production companies no longer have to rent the space for writers to show up every day. They don't have to buy at lunch. They save thousands of dollars every right. week. Right. Just not having that. So I don't think they'll be gone forever. I just don't think they'll be there for as long as the production shoot would end up being on, which is what it had been. Mm-hmm. In terms of like studio space, I wonder if the, well, we see how many venues and places are closing left, right, and center in the city. Um, not only how many are going to emerge from this, but like, is movement going to change because we've been sitting on our asses for a year? Like, what's that going to be like? I actually read a really interesting article about this, like really early on when I was preparing for my defense about speaking a little bit to, I mean, like kind of answering your question, but kind of, I think, sidestepping a little bit. But um, it was just talking about how uh, we find these like um, trauma moments kind of in our lives define work for like years ahead. So for example, they compared it to um, 9-11. When 9-11 happened, people were in the States specifically and people all over the world that were like, people in the States were just staying home. They like were confined to their houses because nobody wanted to leave because of the terror attacks, right? And the original attack that we saw was obviously the World Trade Center. So I think what ended up happening later on is they saw a year later, a lot of contemporary work and a lot of work and art in general had to do with looking up so had to do a lot with dancers looking up and like being seeing something and collapsing Mm -hmm. you know so like kind of which really like is interesting when it's just like event forming creation or event forming body and how it affects your body and how your body takes information and where it falls right so like where people find their tension and where people find their happiness and like it's it's always a different part of your body right if you think about Mm -hmm. like where your happiness comes from or where your like anxiety comes from so i think like movement does a really good job of like trauma sorry trauma sits in the body really well and dance and specifically contemporary movement does a really good job of translating that trauma into movement because you can feel it so in-depthly into in specific parts of your body So I think because of this pandemic, you're going to see like a lot of people feeling like enclosed. So I think for the Mm -hmm. next couple of years, you're going to see a lot of movement and a lot of art that has to do with feeling trapped. Or (laughs) even if it's not specific, like quarantine art, (laughs) it might be like people feeling trapped in relationships, people feeling trapped, people getting scared to touch. It might be an over amount of touch. You know, it'll, it'll definitely modify how we create and how, how like art moves into like phases, you know? Mm-hmm. Yeah. That could be cool. Yeah. That could yeah. be really cool, I think. I'm also interested to see if this lack of space and this lack of rehearsal space and performance space that we're seeing throughout the city is also gonna uh, shape how contemporary art is gonna be seen. Like, is it going to be more like in pedestrian style spaces rather than performance spaces and how that affects movement and how that affects audiences mm-hmm. and the relationship of like closeness between performer and audience member, right? Because if you take it out of a theater, all of a sudden there's a different relationship to your audience. Totally. 
And that's oh. like immersive and site specific. Yes. Public spaces will be like emerging, I'm sure. Yeah. Which, is, which we've already seen. I don't know if you're familiar with like the Bent Way, but the Bent Way is like a public performance. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. 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 Fort York, yeah. Yeah, yes. yeah. And even in the past, like, you know, seven months, there's been a lot of shows have moved to that. A lot of rehearsals have moved to that location, which is a public space. So. Oh, and it's covered. Right. Yeah. So. Yeah. And it's yeah. covered. Yeah. Very mm -hmm. smart. Yeah. yeah. Um, before we end, Tom, yeah. we have to ask you the question. Corinne? Is being an artist fucking killing you? Every day, very slowly for <laughs> eternity. Yeah. For eternity. Yeah. <laughs> no. Yes, 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 it is. Um, yeah. do, I, do I go more in depth with that? Sure. If you want to. If you want to, if you just want to leave it at that, that's also okay. That's fine. <laughs> trying to think of how specific I should get. No, I think I was pretty in depth with how I feel over the course of the last hour. <laughs> Hopefully, it wasn't too much whinging. But, uh, no, it wasn't at all. at all. I don't think so. Um, thank you so much, Tom. Thank you. Thanks for having me. It's, if uh, people wanted to, to, uh, to this much. Oh, thanks. Yeah. yeah. Um, if people wanted to check you out, check out your writing, see, do you have a website or Instagram or anything? Uh, I don't have a, a website. I have a very shoddy Twitter. It's uh, <laughs> at 400 characters, 400 characters. Uh, <laughs> come for the uh, shitty memes and stay for the uh, leaf scraping. <laughs> Amazing. Yeah. Thank you so much, Tom. It's been so yeah. lovely seeing you again. You guys too. Great nice uh, to meet you. <laughs> um, if you guys uh, liked this episode and you liked um, seeing this new way that we're recording, <laughs> leave us a review, leave us a comment, post about us, share with us, go to our Patreon, check us out. This will be uh, available through video on our Patreon. And if you haven't checked it out, go ahead and do it. Thank you so much. And we'll see you guys next week.